Welcome to The Future Belongs to Creators. I'm your host, Barrett Brooks. I'm the COO at ConvertKit. My co-host is our CEO, Nathan Barry. We're on a mission to help creators earn a living, and this is a show about turning anxious energy into creative output during times of uncertainty. It is the future belongs to creators. It's Friday, July 31st. Hello, my fine feathered friends. I'm Barrett Brooks. This is Nathan Barry, and it's casual Q&A Friday, hence the hat, which if you're listening, makes no sense. We're going to have a good time today because I am quite energetic and Nathan is amused by me. So, Nathan, how are you doing? Uh, you know, Barrett, whatever you say. If amused <laughs> is the role that you want me to play today, then I can be <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm I'm good. Uh, quite green. It's going to be a good day, good episode. It's been a good week. Um, tons of work to do, but but it's been good. It's going to be absurdly hot, like 106 tomorrow in Boise. So I should escape to the mountains. I don't officially have plans to do that because I made other commitments. Anyway, but it's going to be good. I'm trying to think what else. Yeah. For those who've been following along, our commerce launch is going well. I think we're up to like maybe 2,000, 1,500 or 2,000 invites that we've sent out, um, which is pretty fun. And it's really fun to see a bunch of creators earning a living on ConvertKit. That creators that aren't employed by ConvertKit, which is what that first batch was. So did you already say, did you give a Red Yellow Green update or did you, you just went into song and dance? Are you saying you don't listen to me when I speak? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> you can read into it whatever you like. Uh, I'm green. It, you know, I got done with my, my night last night. I was on vacation last week. I know I like, let me just say, I'm sorry. I left you all for two episodes. Actually, I guess it was just one episode. Um, but I'm back and I hope you've enjoyed me being back this week. Cause I certainly have. Anyways, I was saying last night, pretty proud. I had a lot of work to catch up on this week and a lot to get done. And I did it all. It took some extra work outside of working hours, which is not always my favorite. However, Getting to the end of the week, feeling successful, had great performance review conversations with the leadership team. The NBA is back, baby, and my Portland Trailblazers play tonight, which has absolutely nothing to do with the show, but it has to do with my spirit and attitude for the day. It's pretty hot this weekend here too, but um, I'm going to try and get out in the yard, spend some time with the kid. The kid. Oh my God. The kid. They take, there's this concept of leaps with kids, which parents listening are like, yes, dummy. Of course there is. But if you're not a parent, there's this concept of a leap. And there's just these periods of time when the kids go from looking like a blob of one kind to looking like a blob of another kind. And last week was a leap for my son Everett. And he started waving, saying new words, Pulling himself up to standing and crawling proficiently from not crawling at all, all at once. Wow. And so it's like a whole new ball game around here. We got to like separate the dogs. We got to move things out of the way. I got to get some rubber liner for hard surfaces. <laughs> Whew. I'm telling you. Anyways, that's how I'm doing. Yeah. Um, by the way, I think you just get the rubber liner. I think that a few like mild concussions for kids are just fine. So <laughs> that's, I'm hoping that's true. Cause I think I had my share of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and also there's this, people do go completely overboard, baby proofing their houses. And we always just did like a little bit and it, it worked out just fine. Not that you should take a sample size of two, but you know, when I were talking about that the other day, we're like, Oh, 
right? Because Josiah just started crawling this week as well. And we were like, I guess we should start baby proofing. And I was like, I mean, what should we do? Like put a thick rug at the bottom of the stairs, like maybe a full couch cushion, you know? And we should, we are going to do more than that. But that's kind of the philosophy that we're in of, you know, you gotta, you gotta raise them to be tough. Okay, that is our allotted five minutes of uh, jibber-jabber. Yes. <laughs> Today, if you've never tuned in before, uh, it's Q&A Friday. What is Q&A Friday? Well, it is question and answers on Friday. How about that? And uh, we've got a few questions already here, but uh, if you have questions and you're in the chat, feel free to drop them. Ken asked ahead of time on Twitter. He said, how do you promote your product and self in a genuine way? What are best practices to effectively cold call others? He gave us a little bit more context. Um, Ken, I believe, was a pastor previously. He's now been building an online business. It sounds like he's got resources or products for other pastors and churches. He's got an okay network of uh, churches that he's connected to, but he obviously wants to get far beyond that in terms of selling um, his products and services. So what's the best way to out, do outreach and promote yourself in a way that's genuine, but also gets the job done, the job being making money? Uh, I, so on Twitter, some of the context that Ben shared or that, that Ken shared is um, that he's got a, a book or a product that he thinks that churches would buy to give away with like baby dedications, which is something that um, a lot of churches do, you know, with every new, new kid joined, uh, born into the church family. So there's something that I like about that in every business that I've done, I've tried to find almost like mini distribution centers. And this would be a a single individual or entity that will sell a small number of your product on a, uh, not a recurring basis, but they will consistently sell that. So let me give an example. Um, The first iPhone app that I did was, was for kids with special needs. So like nonverbal autism or someone who had had a stroke and lost ability to speak to do synthesized speech from an iPad. And one thing that I did is I worked directly with speech language pathologists, one, to get their feedback on the product, but the second really important reason is that they would then recommend it to all their clients. And they wouldn't recommend a crazy number, but each speech language pathologist might recommend it to four to five clients a month. And that turned into, you know, you get enough of these like little tiny distribution hubs and that turns into a pretty meaningful distribution over time. So when I saw Ken's question, I thought of the exact same thing, right? You know, he's asking about direct outreach and you're like, oh, direct outreach to sell a book. That's, that's tough, right? Cause we're trying to make a $20 sale or $40 sale somewhere in there. And, and you can't do that, but direct outreach to establish many distribution hubs where now every church is saying, oh, we'll do this. I don't know how many kids are, I, I don't know, let's say it's 25 kids a year, 30 kids a year, something like that, um, that they'd be buying it for any church. Then it's starting to be really worth it. And so in that case, I would definitely reach out to those um, churches. I'd send them, you know, a copy of the book with a note. um, And then I'd follow up over email. I don't know the amount of cold email that pastors get, but I'm imagining it's a little bit less than like software CEOs. (laughs) And so I would pay attention to that, that cold email. And so I think it's worth doing. You can also do it at scale. There's an incredible number of churches. Um, You can also divide by like a denomination or, you know, so if you think about doing sales, as we talk about it with ConvertKit or, or others, we, you know, we divide by industry and you can totally do that with churches as well. So those are my initial thoughts. Barrett, what would you add? A couple of things. One is um, knowing where in a church's budget this falls. So what category of spending is this coming out of? Um, second is knowing who in a church structure typically buys this. And that'll change by church size, of course. Um, 
but knowing who really you're trying to sell to. Sometimes the tendency is to reach out to the senior most person you can get a hold of. Uh, That's a good point. One way to go about things for sure. Um, but honestly, I get so many emails about stuff that people want to sell us at ConvertKit and I just delete them all because I don't make any of those decisions. Our team makes all the decisions on spending for the most part. Um, and so knowing who to sell to is really important because otherwise you might just hit someone's inbox where it's like, I don't really have time to explain to you the fact that I don't make this decision. So where does it fall in the budget? Who are you selling to? And then just being personal, you know, doing a little research goes a long way. Knowing the context you're selling into, knowing how big the church congregation is, knowing the denomination, um, knowing the background of the person, like you can probably do 20 minutes of research and that would be really thorough on an organization and the person you're selling to really thorough compared to the way most people sell and send a much better email that's personal. It shows your personality and background and relates to their situation. And that's going to be way more effective. I just can't tell you the number of emails that feel almost disrespectful in their lack of research or relevance to our organization. An example would be like, we are so public with so many things about ConvertKit. Number one being that we are a remote company. The people who email me about snacks for the break room, it's like, why are you wasting both of our time? So anyways, sell to the right people, know what area of the budget you're selling to and make it personal would be my three tips there. There's a book that I read on sales for uh, software companies a while ago. I'm trying to remember the name of it. It was, it's by Jason Lemkin and somebody else. Uh, but basically what they talk about is that exact problem of emailing the right person. And what they like to do is email someone fairly high up and ask for the intro to the right person. And they say, hey, I know it's not you. Who's the right person to talk to you about this? And that way it can end up as a warm intro. It's, it's sort of a cold intro, but it's from that person's boss or whatever. And they're like, oh, I uh, talked to this person. And you can get a lot higher results from that rather than going straight for the sale to the wrong person. One last point here. Any, we talked about uh, minimum viable income a few episodes back and we did kind of like conversion rates all the way down, but we did it backwards. Cold calling is a conversion funnel, you know, in marketing terms. And so I'm going to talk about it in those terms for just a second, even though there's always a human on the other end, never forget that a hundred cold emails might get you 10 responses. If it's good, might get 20, if it's great, five, if it's okay. And none, if it's bad. So what you have to realize is that the sales mentality you have to take is every no is just a step towards a yes. Not with that same person, but if you're playing a game of numbers, which any conversion funnel is, and you know 100 people will yield 10 responses, will yield four interested parties, will yield two buyers, then every 100 emails you send gets you two distribution centers, right? And that is a good outcome. Well, I don't know if that's a good outcome, but theoretically, if that's what you're defining as a good outcome, what you have to realize is you're going to get 98 no's in one form or another to get the two yeses. And I think way too many creators who go into this kind of conversation expect it to be easier than that or for it to happen faster. They get like five no's and they say, oh, well, the world's going to fall apart. I might as well stop. I cannot emphasize enough the degree to which you have to have perseverance if cold calling is the approach you're going to take. And I think it's a very valid and valuable one. ConvertKit would not be where it is today if Nathan hadn't done his cold emailing. So 
anyway, just keep that in mind, Ken, and anyone else who's doing that kind of outreach. Yep, totally. All right, the next question is from Noah. And Noah's asking, they say the customer is always right. What asterisks, if any, would you put on this saying? The customer is always right about the pain that they are experiencing. Ooh, that's good. That is true, right? From their perspective, they are experiencing a pain. I'll give you an example. We got a tweet today to the ConvertKit account that said, the ConvertKit app is a complete piece of whatever. He didn't say it like that. And why do they put all of these ads in it? And in our uh, Slack instance, there were just a bunch of like holding your chin emojis because number one, we don't have an app. And number two, we certainly don't offer ads up in the app that doesn't exist. But somewhere, someone must have created an app that looks like ConvertKit or is emulating us or something like that. And it's got ads in it. And so that person's experience of the ConvertKit brand is real. He is right about that experience. And so that's the first thing we have to start with is he feels that way. There's, we can't prove that wrong. What we can do though, is approach that relationship from that place of empathy and understanding and then go into, okay, so we don't actually have an app. We'd love to understand where you found it so that if someone's impersonating us, we can get that fixed, but let us help you actually find the real thing that you need over here. So I say, start like the pain is always right, but the outcome a person wants, what they're demanding from you or asking of you or accusing you of, those things might not be right. And so part of your job as the entrepreneur is to recognize the pain or the struggle or the ambition or hope that the customer is feeling, which is always right. And then decide what do I need to or want to do about that, given my priorities. Uh, And sometimes it's nothing. Sometimes it's to say, sorry, you had that experience, but it might not be for you. Yeah, absolutely. And so like, as you dig in, right, because someone might say, I'm experiencing this pain and this is what you should do about it. And you have to decouple those two things and say like, well, first, don't argue about what you should do about it in a way that makes it feel like to them you're um, overriding or nullifying or whatever their pain or saying that doesn't matter. So if you can recognize uh, their pain, oh, there was a, now I'm trying to think, not how to never lose a customer, oh, how to win friends and influence people. When the line is something like, I totally understand why you're frustrated. And if I had that experience, I would feel exactly the same way. And like if someone writes in with a customer support ticket or whatever, you haven't actually admitted fault or said like, oh yeah, we really screwed up. But you're like, oh, if I was in your position, like I would feel the same way and you're establishing that empathy. So that's really important on the one side. But then on the, what should I do about it, right? Maybe it's build this feature. Maybe it's, I should offer this refund. Maybe it's giving them this thing for free. That's where you you compare it against two things. One, your long-term vision for the type of company or product that you want to build. And then two is your values as you execute towards that, that vision. Is Are your values the, to be the kind of company where you just take care of everybody to the best of your ability so long as it matches your vision? Then like, great, do that and, and move on. But that may not mean, you know, dropping everything and building for something for somebody right now because you right. have your long-term vision in mind. I want to make that concrete. So one of our account managers came to us recently and said, hey, I'm talking to this big potential customer and they really want transactional email. And what transactional email is, is a person makes a purchase, you send them a receipt or they click, I need a password reset, you send them the email in response. And it's a different permission structure than marketing email, where this is more like customer facing and 
it's requested. We don't do transactional email. We've never done transactional email. We don't currently have plans to. We might eventually, but we're not planning to right now. And so one of the questions, it's, it's true that that customer would experience pain if their marketing emails and transactional emails had to be in two different places. We can establish that as true. That's what they're saying. Now, we have a question to ask ourselves, which is, do we want to build transactional email? And the follow-up question I asked the account manager is, what kind of company is this? Is this a creator? Is, are they core to our market? You know, is this some big name that would help us win market share in a core part of the industry? And it turned out it was a big e-commerce company that makes children's products to be broad without, you know, throwing them under the bus or anything. And it's not really core to the market we're trying to win. And so that gives me really good information. I can acknowledge what they need and what their pain is or what their goal is. And also say, we're not going to build that. It might be better for us to recommend a solution that would be good for that instead. And so that's the balance. And then sometimes there's someone right in the core of your market. They're spot on. They found a thing that's not working. It's like, oh, that really should be fixed. And we maybe should do that before we go build something new that we want to build or whatever it might be. Yep. That's good. Hopefully that answered the question. Um, let's dive into Sean's question. This is Nathan and Barrett. Can you please talk about your experience, skills, creativity, and how those complement each other in regards to how you two run ConvertKit? Well, it's a great question because it, it hits on something that I think is very true about how we lead, which is that we have very different strengths. I mean, we come from very different backgrounds. Um, we have very different natural strengths. And so I like to define the, the job description of a COO as complementing the CEO. That's the job description. And it's always different. And so here, um, I think we're both kind of good at vision and strategy. And so we do those things jointly. You know, we look forward, we think about the future. And then on your side, you're very good at product. You're very good at design. You're very good at taking a vision and saying, here are the next three steps we need to take. I'm not as good at what are the next three steps. I'm better at the like kind of longer range planning. What's the three-year goals that we need to hit? How do we build into where we want to be? And so that complements each other very well. You know where to start. I know where we need to end up. And so we end up with this like plan that we have either end of, and it ends up much easier to get to. On my end, I think I am, I don't always enjoy it, but I am good at process communication, follow-up, some of those kinds of things that is just kind of like the blocking and tackling that has to happen as you have a growing organization. Let's define process. Let's teach people how to use it. Let's communicate regularly on what's going on in the organization. And I think sometimes those things are a little bit more irritating to you or like, uh, do we really have to do that? And then I think we're both not great at following up with other people on their commitments that they've made at times. We kind of like see the commitment they're making and assume they're going to do it. And then sometimes we check in on it. Sometimes we don't. So I think that's the thing we're both working on is knowing that like trust, but verify is a really valuable term. Um, we trust all of our team to do what they say they're going to do, but you should be holding people accountable. It's like this valuable mechanism humans need to know that someone cares whether they followed through on what they said they were going to do. So that's a basic breakdown for me. I don't know. Any, any commentary from you on that? Yeah. Well, I like what you're saying of the CEO's job being that compliment to the CEO, because that, that talks about how it's going to be different all the time, right? Because within like the CEO's skill set, it's going to vary so much. So for example, like, as you mentioned, I'm a very product-focused CEO. I have marketing experience, right? But I'm very focused on product. August is here to hang out. 
He's he's not gonna come in, um, <laughs> but he always does that. He comes up and he looks and then like looks through the window to see if I'm on a Zoom call. In this case, I'm recording a podcast. Um, yeah, he's he's gone. Um, I always try to get him to come in and say hi, and uh, he has a few times, but he wouldn't. He usually won't do it. He's probably asking about airsoft guns. Um, okay, so you're a product driven right. CEO. Was what the last thing you were saying? Yeah. And so that's where I need a lot of support on the other side, but like at other CEOs, right. If you had a sales driven CEO, which the last, um, uh, CEO that I worked for was sales driven. And so his COO was very much operations and actually ran like all of product and engineering and all of that reported up into him. Whereas in this case, right. Product reports up to me. So that's the example there. I always think about what would life like with a question like this, what would life be like if it was just one of us, mm-hmm. you know, what would we be tackling? Well, and I really think I would be very focused on what's right in front of us. What is the next three months hold? And I would have all of these principles and ideals, but they wouldn't be expressed clearly. So one thing that you and I do really well is I'll say something in like the longer meandering way. And then go, and you go, what I hear you saying is this. I'm like, Ooh, Yes, yes, that's it. Did you write that down? And you're like, no, but I can't. And we've even done that with, you know, I think the first craft and commerce keynote, actually, I think we've done it with every um, keynote that I've done, where you and I will sit down and I'll say in 15 minutes, this is what I want to say. And you'll be like, it's like taking notes. And then you'll say, okay, how about this? And it'll be in a totally different order. It'll be a different lead in. It'll be stated in a different way, but convey the same meaning. And that's, I think, where, uh, we really complement each other well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Uh, I've always said that I would never start another business to kind of like round this out. I would never start another business without a business partner. And the reason is just for me, I'm a social person. I'm like just on the side of extroverted on that scale. And I really enjoy the partnership aspect of building something together. I don't like the loneliness of being a creator, I guess if I were going to be like a writer or researcher or something like that, I'd, I'd work with an assistant who was that equivalent. And so I think just knowing whether you're the kind of person who wants a partner is really important in this kind of relationship. And then looking for someone who compliments you, not someone who has the same skill set, because that can be really frustrating for both people when you're trying to do the same work and you're like taking projects from each other or disagreeing on implementation details. Like, you know, I don't have any business getting in the middle of how we're implementing stuff on the product side of the house. I have ideas and I can give you like really bad sketches of things. And that's about as far as I can go. And then on the other hand, like you're perfectly happy for me to take and like do the detailed plan for the year that comes out of the conversations we've had or build the board deck or whatever that I do on my end. So anyways, find someone who compliments you. Another and kind of last example here is that I would be all the way over in gut feeling for making decisions and you're bringing in like a healthy dose of data and process where I'm like, yeah, but these three conversations that I had and uh, what I think is the right thing to do, like that means that we should go spend like a million dollars on this. And you're like, cool, that is two really great inputs. And now let me bring in like some quantitative side to that as well. And that's a really healthy balance. And I think that there, what's interesting is there's another world where I could totally see myself being the person with all the wild ideas and needing someone to check me. And so something to realize is that it's all about the relationship. Um, 
you know, you adapt to playing the role that you need to play based on your strengths in a given partnership. And that can change from person to person. Yeah. So as we're thinking about that with the individual creator, right? Because if you're running your business, say you're at that $75,000, a year mark, you're not going to hire a COO or you may not have a business partner. And so that's where you look at, okay, who are my mentors that I'm turning to? And then who's my mastermind group? And there might be the mastermind group where you're like, oh, let's pull this group together because we think in exactly the same way. And, you know, we just have such a great time together and all of that. And you realize like, we have all the same weaknesses who put this group together. And so you might want to pull somebody in. Uh, Like we have this mutual friend, uh, Matt Gartland, who for a bunch of our friends has come in and been like, let me show you cash flow statements for creative focused businesses, you know? And so if you're like, he's so different from the way he approaches things to other creator friends that he in the groups that he's gone in has like blown people's minds of like, whoa, I could know how much money is coming in and like forecast this and all that. And so he's played that role because people have specifically sought him out to complement their, their other weaknesses. Yeah. I love that. Um, okay. We've got, uh, we've got three questions and that's probably all we'll be able to get to today. So any questions from here, we'll add to next week's episode. Brian asked uh, a few weeks back, Barrett mentioned giving himself a 20 hour crash course in graphic design. I'd like to do the same thing. How would you design this specifically, Nathan? uh, How would you direct his 20 hours of study? So I will just preface this with the first thing I would do is I would read Josh Kaufman's book, the first 20 hours before you did this. And then I would follow whatever Nathan's going to say. Yeah, that's great. Josh's book is fantastic. Okay. So if I'm learning design, the first thing that I would do is, is just pick a single tool to work in because design is separate from the tool and you could design in, in most any tool. Like I've seen people do amazing designs in Keynote or any of these other things, right? So you can do it a bunch of different ways. Just pick a tool. In this case, I would pick Figma because it's free to start. You can share your graphics on the web and um, uh, you, it's like collaboration is really easy. Then the next thing that I would do is identify what is the most important elements in design. And okay, so on the spot, if I were to try to think what these things are, and I'm curious what Emily would say in the chat as well, but I would say visual hierarchy. So deciding what's important and what's not, spacing and alignment, and like how to lay it out on the page, and then typography, like those three things, that's what I would focus on. And so now as we're playing around with things, there's a lot of great resources for typography, but I would try to spend about a third of my time just reading and learning about typography and then recreating examples that I found. So for example, I'm going to screen share for a second. Um, there's a designer um, that's a good friend of ours uh, named Rafal who has a site called typespiration.com. And he's just done all these great font pairings, right? And they just look so good. It, like header combined with the body font. And then he just lists out what he has there. So like, this is a much better place to browse than like Google fonts, for example, because he's, he's putting them in practice and you can see how different fonts, like he has a bunch of these that use Meriwether, for example, and you can see how he uses it in different ways and it looks um, different. And so I would go through and I would try to recreate other things. So I'd start in this small thing and I would try to recreate, like I would just pick one that I really like. Uh, maybe we like this one here and I would dive in and I would go into Figma and I would just recreate this exactly and realize, oh, this text right here on this button, that's actually not the default. He went all caps with that. That's interesting. He also has the letter spacing spaced out a little bit. And by recreating and copying, I would start to find those details as to 
like what went into making that happen. And then once I've done that on a really small scale, I would probably do one example of it on a larger scale of like recreating a full website, just straight up. I pull it up over here and then just copy it over here, you know, and, and learn from that. Cause you just learn so much from it. And then from there, I would pick something real that I actually want to make, whether it's my book cover, whether it's, you know, any of those things. And I would make my thing with the lessons that I learned um, in that. And then I'd go through other examples from like Typespiration and say like, okay, now let me make my same book cover or my same website uh, in this new style or with these other fonts. So that's where I would start. That would definitely take you through 20 hours. If you have an audience of any kind, um, I would tweet about it and share the Figma links and say, hey, this is what I designed. I'm trying to learn design. What feedback do you have? And ask people to actually drop comments directly in there. Yep, totally. Okay, let's see. Pierre says, uh, from the point you started making money on your own to now having a company that makes almost $2 million per month, which is a milestone coming up probably in the next 30 days that we'll get to celebrate together. How have your identities and characters changed? Uh, let's see. So the first one that came to mind for you that I would say about you is there is a separation between what you think and what you say that didn't used to exist. Mm-hmm. Like not that there's a disconnect now, but there's a pause. There's nuance <laughs> between those things. Whereas like three years ago, it was not there. <laughs> you want to know what Merritt thinks? Don't worry. You already know. <laughs> he already told you. <laughs> um, and that's just something that's really helpful because you're able to create that space for someone else to have a, like their own perspective and opinions and all that and to put it out there and then to, you know, reflect it back or, um, and then say you're a part of it. And it's a much more balanced thing. Whereas, you know, a few years ago, it it was definitely like, here's what we got to solve. Let's get that done now. Nope. That's not going to work for us. And, and like, now there's nuance Barrett instead of steamroller Barrett. I don't know. <laughs> That's just one example. That feels, yeah, that feels accurate to me for sure. I think one of the things I've seen in you is uh, you've been kind of public and open about sharing where you came from as a kid and, and not having a lot of resources and money. Um, it's been really fun and interesting to see you come into that and kind of own the fact that you run a profitable, successful, growing business. You're the CEO, you're the majority stakeholder, you do your growing wealth, you know, as a result of this business. And seeing the moderated way in which you've put those resources to use, it's fun to see the the ways you're willing to splurge and kind of like embrace the fact that you have resources now at this point in your life. But also the fact that like, you didn't go buy a $5 million house, you bought a farm you know, with a a few acres and you really enjoy making it a great place to live. You bought a Tesla Model S, not like a Lamborghini. And so there's like this interesting growing embrace of your self-acknowledgement that there is wealth and there is um, abundance in your future. And then learning what you want to do with that has just been a fun change that I've seen for you. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, just realizing that like so much of what we splurge on is like, well, I think one of my favorite purchases of the last, uh, last couple of years is our tractor, which it was expensive. It was like $17,000. So like, that's, that's really expensive. But like, people are like, wait, a tractor is your favorite. And I'm like, yeah, just like, we can move so much. Like it's so efficient. You know, and people are like, okay, <laughs> that's great. Oh so. man. Totally. I'm trying to think if there's maybe one more, um, on either side here. I think I've, one of the things for me is, um, and this is a little bit related to what I say, but I think I've gotten less 
less black and white and more patient. I used to think very much in yes, no terms. And I've really learned to think in scales or valence um, instead. And what I've realized is my brain's really good at establishing the ends and that there's a connecting line between those ends. It's not either or, it's actually a sliding scale. And that's been really powerful for me because my brain naturally wants to go to yes or no, either or. And in that, I think I've grown, we've grown maybe together actually more patient and understanding that the things we want to achieve take time. Some of it is just literally continuing to show up for long enough to realize our our future goals. We have to do the right things along the way, but some of it can't be accelerated. (laughs) You know, you just have to wait on it. And, And that's hard for me. I want all of it now. Uh, That's my natural tendency anyways. And so enjoying the journey and getting more patient with it has definitely been an area for me to grow. Yep, that's good. All right, our last question of the day is from Becky. Um, She says, Pat Flynn's email today was about entrepreneurs and facing returning to school decisions in the wake of COVID. What thoughts do you have for people trying to decide what to do and balancing their business? Oh, Lord. That's a tough one. The first thing I would say is, If I'm going to plan, I'm going to plan for scenarios. I'm not going to plan for what I hope for, because what everyone hopes for is that kids can go back to school, that it's going to be safe and that they can stay there. And I think we have a wide range of possible outcomes from where we are today, uh, given the environment. Geography is playing a huge role in that too. Yep. This is like worst likely case, I guess, where like no one dies and no one gets sick in your family. Worst case would be, maybe even likely worst case would be no in-person school through the school year, this next year, not just the fall, the spring semester too. And so the first plan I would make is if there is no in-person school or there it's there for a little while and then they shut it down because things go poorly, what's our plan as a family for the full school year? That's the first plan I would make because I think that might be one of the most likely outcomes, unfortunately. The second plan I would make is Fall is like maybe a mix or all the way at home and then spring we're back to normal. I think that's a decently likely outcome if we get a vaccine. I would plan for that scenario. And the last scenario is that school, the local school district I'm part of is just stubborn and they stay open no matter what. And now we have to be the deciding factor on what we are going to do with our kids based on what we're seeing in the school. And that's the third scenario I would plan for because there is no scenario where this month, August that's coming when school was supposed to start, it's completely safe for everyone. It's just not happening. COVID is present and growing rapidly still in the country. And so I think a lot of it, even if school is open, is going to be a family by family decision. So those would be my scenarios. I don't know what you think, Nathan, you've got school age kids. I don't. Yeah. So Hillary and I have been having those conversations this week. Um, our kids are slated to go back to a two day a week, like half homeschool, half, uh, private school. Um, and so we were, we were realizing, wait, what are we doing? And what we basically decided that we're doing is we're still enrolling them in that school. It just might be a hundred percent at home. And so the conversations that I would start to have one, I love what you're talking about of defining the scenarios because otherwise you're trying to hold all of that in your head and it's, it's too much going on. So you have to fully step into each scenario and be able to write that down and say, okay, if this happens, what do we do? The other things. I would start those conversations with um, other family members of, okay, what else would we cut back on in each, in each scenario? What would we do for childcare? Do we have, you know, so if, if kids are fully at home, um, what are we doing on, on childcare? What Can are our we options? Loop, 
yeah, can we loop in some in-laws? Can we, maybe we can have a, a co-quarantine with one other family and we can trade off where it's like, Hey, I'll watch your kids for these four hours. You watch my kids for these four hours. And Hey, you know, <laughs> it's not ideal, but, um, it's better than us each handling it on our, on our own. And then I'd have those conversations with work early, right? Because everyone's facing it and it doesn't do any good to just sit back and like hope for the best. Yeah. It's outline those scenarios. Um, and, um, I know at ConvertKit, we're having those conversations now and just saying like to all of the parents who are with you, like, we're here for you. We will design plans around, um, your schedule. Um, so, and then the last thing that I would say is keep in mind there from a work perspective, there is still a federal aid that I believe goes through the end of the year where if you're taking time off because of a school closure someone who's sick or any of those things that your salary is paid by the federal government in the form of a tax credit. So if that gives you some more confidence going to your employer and saying like, look, I can't work 40 hours a week. You know, I could do 15 or I could do 10 or, or, or 20, then know that they have access to that where they're not like having to pay your salary and get nothing in return. The federal government is covering that in the form of a tax credit. Yeah. And then if you're a full-time creator, which, you know, some portion of the audience is, I know we've got beginners, we've got people who are part-time on their side hustle, and then we've got people who are full-time creators. For full-time creators, you know, you are the employer. And unfortunately, there aren't the same kind of benefits for single uh, sole proprietorships as there are, which is kind of a bummer. You know, there's like maybe a future where we do some advocacy work and trying to educate Congress on the real effects on solo entrepreneurs of things like business taxes and lack of uh, benefits that uh, serve them and everything. Anyway, side note, maybe that's a topic for a, a later time. You, I would take my family plan and then let that inform my business plan. I think one of the worst things you can do is be unrealistic with your expectations for your business in the face of your family plan. For example, if you're going to be part or full-time caretaking for your kids based on your family plan, then you need to be realistic about what can be done in the business. And if you're relying on that income, the single most important thing you can do is make a list of everything you do in your business and be brutally honest with yourself about the things that are absolutely necessary to make money and then everything else. Because the everything else is probably what you're going to have to let go of if you're going to have to be in charge of the kids at part-time or full-time right now. And so really knowing what are the activities that drive my business engine to make money will be a lifesaver in the school year to come if you've got to have childcare duties. Yeah, that's good. I think we covered all the questions. Love it. Okay, let's get into creator of the day. All right, my creator of the day, I, our good friend, Laura Roeder, known her for a very long time. She built a successful audience through a blog and everything, um, and then went ahead and launched a software company called Edgar. That's at meetedgar.com. And she's got a new project um, at paperbell.com, which is uh, software for coaches to manage the scheduling, payments, um, all of that. So set up your own little coaching shop. So check that out, paperbell.com. And then uh, you can follow Laura on Twitter. I think twitter.com slash LKR. Love it. Um, my creators of the day are Bjork and Lindsay Ostrom. I can't, I can never remember if it's Ostrom or Ostrom. Anyways, they run a food blog called Pinch of Yum. Delicious, original recipes uh, online. 
They also have a business called Food Blogger Pro, which you can see the little logo for right up here, which is online education for creators who want to be food bloggers or who are food bloggers and want to build a business around it. Bjork and Lindsay have built one of the most successful kind of food empires on the web in this creator world. And uh, they are just the most delightful, down-to-earth, wholesome humans, some of them anyways, that I know, and uh, really well worth uh, using their recipes and um, if you're a food blogger, taking some of their courses to learn more from them. So love them. Um, check them out. They're at pinchofyum.com. Let's see. Resources of the day. Do you have anything, Nathan? I'm just going to plug typespiration.com again, uh, which I mentioned earlier. If you're learning typography or want more examples, um, definitely check that out. Well, okay. Really, uh, what I'll, I'll tell you to read is my article called Expertise, Why You Need It and How to Get It. Uh, let me see if I can get the link real quick for that. It's my answer to the question of how to approach a 20-hour learning project, basically, or how to approach building expertise in a topic like design, like we got asked earlier. In it, I break down the three books that I think are most useful for developing a framework for learning new skills. And those three books are Mastery by Robert Greene, The 4-Hour Chef by Tim Ferriss, which might be the best of them, and then The First 20 Hours by Josh Kaufman. If I were going to read them in priority order, it would be 4-Hour Chef, First 20 Hours, Mastery. Mastery is the most like enjoyable read, maybe. Like The other two are very kind of how to do the thing. Mastery has this these intricate interesting stories as a part of it. Anyways, those three books are really excellent for learning how to learn. And I, my post on expertise is the one that kind of summarizes what I would take away from those. Yeah, that's good. All right. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back on Monday. Thanks for listening to The Future Belongs to Creators. We're the makers of ConvertKit, where we're on a mission to help creators earn a living by building software that helps you build an audience of loyal fans. ConvertKit is the best way to launch or grow your next creative project. To start building your audience with a landing page and to send emails up to 500 subscribers for free, go to landingpage.new. That's landingpage.new to get started with the free ConvertKit account today. We'll see you next time. Oh, 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 oh,